In a few weeks' time, we're coming to Australia and New Zealand for the Cosmic Shambles live tour. Uh, we've got lots of guests there, including Helen Chersky, Matt Parker and Lucy Green, and lots of uh, musicians and comedians. If you'd like to know more about that, then go to CosmicShamblesLive.com. We're still giving away two boxes of books per episode, one to a Patreon supporter and one to a PayPal supporter. Slightly bigger box of books for the Patreon supporter. So if you listen to the end of this episode, you will find out who the two winners are. <laughs> Do you know what, Josie? I, Guess what I had for breakfast what? and what I made for my son as well. What? Porridge. Yes. I win. So, welcome to... Uh, the, do you know what? I was going to say, welcome to the Infinite Monkey Cage. No. Oh, we've been upgraded. I've been too many podcasts. Up, upgraded. Looks, he looks... Upgraded! Um, anyway, welcome to Josie and Robin's book, Shambles. The only reason I briefly thought it was Monkey Cage was because of the last one we did together. You were extremely good on the physics. And I think, <laughs> was oh, I good? Yeah. Or you, did I just say silly things? You gave the right answer to someone who understands theoretical I did physics. the right answer. She was very kind to me. So, we have our guest of today is uh, a poet and uh, an author of... I never really like children's books. It's kind of like... Because I think your books... Uh, though they're for a market, I presume of what ten plus. Uh, some of them are nine plus, and some are a bit younger. Uh, but basically, intelligent children. Uh, so listeners to this podcast would certainly have children in the right right brain group. Nice. Or they themselves nice. might be in the right brain. Group. Indeed, the, indeed, uh, absolutely. We are merely intelligent children at the <laughs> very best on our, on our best days. So. When did you you did you start off as uh, we'll do a little bit of kind of biography? Mm-hmm. But did you start off as a, a, a performing poet? I started off as a teenage poet, which is very different. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, black black albatrosses of doom fly. I, I did quite a lot of that uh, for a while. Then got into the performing poetry slams and open mics and all that jazz, and became funnier because people preferred. The funny poems to the black, black albatrosses of doom flying around and all that. What was, do you have a memory of, uh, it's a bit like there's certain, you know, little bits of routines that I remember from when I was like 20 years old and I just go, and I realised why I burnt all those notebooks. (laughs) Have you kept any of, or maybe all of it, but certain early poems where you think, I'm going to keep that framed and always remember, I am getting better. When, (laughs) When I was... 15 or 16 or 17 at school, I used to spend my... Uh, I had a monthly allowance. We'd moved up from pocket money to a monthly allowance at that point. Nice. I used to spend it all in Horsham Library, where I grew up. I didn't grow up in the library, but I grew up in Horsham. <laughs> I'd go down the library and I would dutifully pump in my entire allowance into the photocopier machine, print out poems, staple them together in little booklets and hand them out to, to people. And now I get messages on Facebook from people I was at school with or sixth form saying, oh, really good to see what you're doing these days. Nice to see that you've made some sort of success of yourself. I've still got your booklet from when you were... <laughs> and it sounds like a threat. <laughs> it really sounds threatening because I, I feel, you know, please burn them. You, you know, left the, the paper trail. I did, I did. But it's the stuff I made. It exists. You can't deny it. Uh, it might not be very good, and most of it isn't very good. But you know, we all work our way to something satisfactory, 
so yes, I remember dreadful things and I'm not sharing them with you here. No, you're quite right not to. I wouldn't do the routines <laughs> that I can remember from like my first gig or whatever. The uh, I think Martha, I was reading, there's a Martha Graham quote at the beginning of uh, um, George Carlin's Brain Droppings, which is basically, the artist is never satisfied. Everything. Um, I read that and I thought, I don't know if that's wrong and actually a rather, you know, romanticising the doom of the artist because I know that a while ago we talked on this about the uh, fantastic um, exhibition uh, at the at the Tate Modern at the moment, the Rauschenberg mm-hmm. exhibition, and where he talks about just the joy sure. of the work and sure. coming from joy. And you don't get a sense that he was always going, um, no, what have I done by painting on that goat? <laughs> that you kind of go, that he, he might have gone, now I want to move on, I want to do something mm. else. Do you as a poet, when you were a teenager doing the Black Black Albatross poems, did you feel that, if happiness did occasionally accidentally rear its terrifying leering head, huh. you would have to kind of go, um, oh, I mustn't have happiness. I must have only Horsham. <laughs> You've been there. We've met there. We've met in Horsham. I, I and... played Horsham the day after the Conservatives won the last election <laughs> and the oh, 200 people fun. in that theatre where I think it was Tories first, UKIP second, yeah. and the 200 people in that theatre were the ones who were just there going, don't tell them we're here. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was a bit like that, wasn't it? Um... I, yes, I, I mean, I didn't have a lot of choice as a teenager about happiness breaking through because I was a teenager and, you know, that's, that's the path. And, but I think there is a truth in that happiness writes white business, writes you know, blank pages. You get stuff out of being miserable easier, perhaps, than finding what is interesting to say about being happy, uh, certainly at that age. Um, perhaps you're you're all looking puzzled. No, everybody about looks you, as if they don't know. I, Is Josie happy? Yeah, I really Good. am actually. I'm I'm in love. It's wonderful. Oh, sorts everything out. But also, I I think I've had a different experience of writing because when I was 23 and I decided to write my first solo show, the the um, parameters that I set myself was I want this to be a show about positivity and mm. about joy. So. As a result, my initial style of writing stand-up was about that, was doing that, was kind of taking things I liked and trying to foist them on the world. So then I'm in this opposite position where recently, the last few years, you know, I've written about kind of pain and anguish, especially about politics. And so now suddenly I'm like, oh, I need to get back to how I used to write, Mm. which was. And so it's like the opposite, you know, and I think it must be quite cool to have it the other way around where if you feel as if you were a miserable <laughs> bastard for 10 years and then suddenly you're like by the way and lots of the times I think it happens to people when they have children like they write a certain way and then they have children but of course the, like, the, the big difficulty whether you're writing from being an angsty teenager or writing from enthusiasm is trying to make it interesting absolutely and it's it's very easy to be an angsty teenager writing black black albatrosses of doom swirling around the thing but nobody cares I feel no, like it has to no, be real. But mm. you're getting it out. You don't have to share it, though. You don't <laughs> have to put it in books and let people 30 years later or 20 years or whenever get them out and go, oh, I remember him. Huh. <laughs> Dear. So doing, my... sorry, slams and open mic and cabaret nights and things like that led to workshops because the time came I lost my, I had a day job. I was a bookseller for much of my 20s in a Blackwell's bookshop in Reading. We were so 
bad at our job. They closed the shop down and made us redundant. We were so <laughs> bad at actually selling books to the people of Reading. You've, you've, mm. and it's a step up from Horsham. No, I know. Uh, but you know what? South I've got nothing against Torsham. I've literally, I think, yes, I've but only again, been South Street. To... It's the 150 people in there who are going. Oh, don't tell them we're here. I'll tell you what, though. The Oxfam bookshop in Reading is bloody excellent. I, I you got will see some, some selections in this stuff. pile yeah. here from Oxfam. I got uh, yeah. Th- uh, yeah uh, no, every time shop. I go there, I just found I found a really weird one, which is of uh, um, strange sex pulp books from the 1950s, Ooh, and I can't remember the title of it, but it's just the covers, these lurid covers, and then sometimes excerpts. And one of them is about a mother and her daughter getting hot for each other. Oh. <laughs> and I just sitting on the train, going, "Oh my god, this is you know that bit where someone's going, there's probably a market, just go for it." <laughs> <laughs> and, and all all of these just you know these people churning out not fantasies from their own mind but just mm. going maybe this is someone's fantasy yeah. tippity type tippity type tippity type here's the cover I can't I'll, I'll bring it in one day before I give it to the person I'm intending it for but it's just like yeah it's 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 a it's not lurid I don't even know if lurid's the right word because it's not real yeah, it's 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 you know because it's a, a, a leap of it's very peculiar. But also, I found a brilliant one of, of Jack Yates's paintings. An incredible book of that. Slightly water damaged. Three pounds fifty. I don't mind. Ooh, very well, hasn't man. made the colours run. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, so I'm saying yeah, the Ox family is one of my favourites. It is a great shop. There. I like. Yes. There's a cafe around the corner from South Street that does. I the think it does global Ethiopian cafe. food. Yeah. Yeah. Which is so delicious pre-gig. These are the the high spots of Reading. If anyone listening wishes to come and visit, um, do. It's a free country. You're allowed allowed to. Yes, yes. uh, That's where we are. I'm wearing, I should point out, to because the listeners can't see this, this is a picture of Vincent, uh, one of our cats. uh, Oh, it's actually your cat. Yes. yes, Who's painted that then? uh, you know my partner, Izzy Lawrence, yes. the stand-up comedian and podcaster. Yes, uh, Izzy Lawrence of the uh, Z-List, Deadlist fame. Uh, she made me T-shirts for Christmas, one with Vincent's face and one with Susan's face, our other cat. And so, especially for you listeners, I wore the cat T-shirt today. We'll get a shot of that. Because some we'll people care. The, yeah. Some people care, don't they? It's a very it good might cat. Be, they might think, books, don't really care about books. Oh, but there's a little cat with his little tongue out. Can I just say, if there's any yes, jerk Josie. listening to this podcast who doesn't really care about books, you can go no, no, fish. No, oh. <laughs> yeah. I, I hate to tell you how to run your own podcast, but surely entice them in. No. And no. don't and call transform. me Shirley. <laughs> We're 50 episodes <laughs> in. Yeah. Fuck yeah. yeah. I, I say entice them out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, to be fair, if they're still listening, then you know, does you no harm, surely. Uh, we'll just because yes, you yeah, have a new book or a book that came out what, about October time? Uh, not, not November, yeah, November. 2016, in case you're listening to this in the future. The uh, the song from somewhere else, um, which is a very, I mean, first of all, they always look beautiful, the, the books. Yes, from the but the story itself, and it is a very, very beautiful, um, again, it's, it's that outsider story. Hmm. It's that story where I could imagine many of the children reading that book it will be something of uh, a lifeline, that thing of being able to see yourself imagined by someone else, imagined by mm. an author. The does illustration that... is beautiful. It's really yeah, beautiful uh, illustration. A chap called Levi Pinfold does the illustrations, and it's worth mentioning him a couple of times because he is fantastic. But it, it works uh, wonderfully together. Yeah. So do you feel that when you're, you know, sometimes when you're writing a story, do you go, it's not just about the story itself and hopefully the fact that carries the audience along. Do you take into account 
how much do you take into account thinking the other benefits that the readers might get from it? Uh, to be honest, I don't. Uh, to be honest, I'm writing the book that, A, I've got a contract that says, can you deliver a book by this date? There's, there's, there's that thought going on. But there's also the thought of this book is becoming what it needs to be, what it is, what the story needs to be. And at the moment, it's just me wrestling with it, trying to make it fit in a shape, let alone trying to think of what other people are going to get coming to it. Mm. Once once it's been written, I've handed it to my editor and she's given me her thoughts and advice and in the rewriting, the redrafting and the sort of shaping and polishing, then maybe there might be <clears throat> thoughts of, you know, this bit might not work for the age group or maybe you can you can afford to put more emotion into this bit or go a bit further with this bit so so in the initial writing it's just me and a manuscript wrestling on a computer screen um i think i think that's a fairly honest way um, i mean it's not something i tend to you know, think about while i'm there but I mean, you then the meet your readers it? because i know you do a lot of yeah. bookshop events i know that in fact uh, i was around a friend of mine's house and they uh, her daughter was cockhoot because she had got uh, an illustration you'd done you were doing an event with chris riddell yep and uh for a while you swapped around he did yep. some writing and you did some drawing yep. and she no, got chris... the long straw or the short straw <laughs> that gave her your illustration so the lovely thing about um chris riddell who at the moment is still children's laureate an author, illustrator of just about every book uh, published in 2016 and 2017. Uh, and he, he did pictures for a poetry book of mine called Things You Find in a Poet's Beard. And so we've done some events together, me doing the poetry and sort of stand-up for kids is essentially what I'm doing there while he does these live drawings on the wall. And because I feel much more happy being funny in front of kids and showing off and being silly... There comes a point where Chris likes to swap over and he'll read one of the serious poems from the book uh, that he's done pictures for and he really likes. And he likes to encourage everyone to doodle. So, Ashley, you have no drawing capabilities, so why don't you draw a picture while I read this poem? It's a nice change of dynamics and it allows some of that sort of more serious poetry out there without me having to sully my comedic capabilities uh by going okay children uh it's easier to do that sort of swap over of roles than change gears and everyone goes oh here's a man who's been silly talking about porridge uh and now he's doing a poem about his dead mum oh uh you know there's something there and chris is brilliant at that and brilliant at the events and so your poor friend got my picture probably of a dog it's usually a dog she yeah. loves it Tilly, Which is, uh, Tilly's her name. She's I tell you, I tell you what, that is probably worth more money than a Chris Riddell original. Because if you've ever seen Chris, he draws so easily and so happily, and he just gives it all away. There is no resale market for Chris Riddell original drawings out there at all. Because there's you know millions of them out there. I feel as if I did. He does satirical cartoons as well. In the obs- he, does, he, he does, does the, the Observer cartoon, the literary review, uh, beautiful covers as well. Mm. The wonderful one of uh, Jean Cocteau currently, uh, yeah. I think, is the one on the newsstands. But he does. He, when I did Ellis. the Carnegie, what's it? It's Carnegie and, and Kate it? Greenaway. Kate Greenaway medal. He he won uh. one and. Uh, they just have a little overhead projector, you know, a little sketchy and he just thing. And he just goes up, yeah. oh, you know, so he can it. say thank you. And it's just... His 
Oh, I love it. I he wish. is terrifyingly fluent. It's terrifyingly easy for him. Oh, um, okay. But he's a lovely, a I lovely man. It's yeah, yeah. Hey, um, this is a thing I've noticed. Uh, at the front What's of up? your song from Somewhere, Somewhere Else, else. Uh, you've got a Brian Patton poem from his Love Poems book. Now, yeah. that book, I was... It, it, profoundly like influenced me as a human being when I was 17 I stole it off my mum um do you are you a fan of his and that book I I've brought with me a pile of stuff books mainly can I this is a perfect opportunity to, to dip in to yeah, the pile if, if that's okay because uh... somewhere in here did you bring it well I, I brought something related to it I brought the the Mersey ah, sound the Mersey sound of course uh, which was on our bookshelf when I was growing up and was a, a, I think Love Poems was there as well, but this was a, a huge influence as a teenager mm. for making poetry interesting uh, and making poetry... Cool. Cool or access, cool. accessible, I think, to, to a contemporary mindset. Mm. You know, growing up in the, in the 80s there, and this is just 20 years out of date, you know, mid-60s mm. for the Mersey sound, compared to trying to get to grips with Blake, who has his, you know, has his moments, but all that airy-fairy language and Tennyson and Keats, which I never got on with at the time. And now, you know, as I've gone on, my, my uh, purview has extended further back because I'm able to encompass you know, and appreciate more things. But as a teenager, reading these, which were written in the language that you spoke, in contemporary English, and three very different styles. You've got Adrian Henry, who writes these uh, painterly, imagistic poems, long list poems of surreal mm. uh, occurrences, and Roger McGough with the sort of smooth, witty, uh, pointed poems, and Brian with the lyrical, mm. absolutely gorgeous love poems and the sort of emptiness of them and the the joy of them they are really different writers they I mean, are like, they are i, I think and, you want to, oh, sorry, i called you darling then that's all right <laughs> darling. That's, uh, do you know what that is my boyfriend calls everyone darling of course he does he's an actor <laughs> the uh um yeah, I think um, I think this was the first book of poetry. Apart from when you're a kid and you buy kids' poetry, this sure. was the first book of. But then Brian Patton's children's poetry, I used to read when I was yeah, a kid. no, gargling with jelly gargling and soaring foes and frogs and the uh, juggling gerbils. Which I would think Roger McGough was the first poet I saw live as well. I saw him when wow. he used to do Brian. Pete. Brian was the first poet I saw live at the Horth in Crawley. I saw him with. Pete McCarthy. Okay. The late, late Pete McCarthy. And uh, see, I think I was probably particularly drawn to this, not because it's poetry, but because Roger McGough was in the Ruttles. <laughs> and so there's a, a, this, this uh, fantastically <laughs> long introduction. Uh, Roger McGough, uh, Liverpool poet, Merseystown. <laughs> did you know the Ruttles? Well, yes, I did. Thank you very much. <laughs> Roger McGough, Liverpool poet. And, and anything connected to anything. And yes. the, you know, that was... Uh, yeah. And then John Hegley, I presume, would have been very early on in terms of... The I first think, poet, poets I saw live. Mm. I think the reason I love Brian, loved Brian Patton so much was because... It you, was the, you still can love him. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, I think the reason I came to love Brian Patton, there we go, that's mm. better grammar, is um, because it was the first time I read love, poem that, love poems that satisfied my kind of longing for reading <laughs> love mm. poems. Mm. But again, as you say, in... In a manner that felt contemporaneous, yeah, and, yeah. Um, and a poem like "A Blade of Grass" or something like that. You know, you asked me to give you a love poem, and yeah, I gave yeah. you a blade of grass. Uh, 
are so simple and so direct and so plain speaking and they're they're glorious and I had the great I feel incredibly lucky in in some things in my life I mean being here with with you yes, people you who very people, small group, 57, <laughs> very small group. The people who I knew as stage presences before I ever knew in private life. I saw both of you on stage before I ever met you and Josie. I'm meeting for the first time. Yes, hello. Hello. Uh, and Robin, we've... we've uh, I've, we've had a drink after some Reading shows every now and then. It's, we've uh, sat in hotel uh, foyers. In salubrious <laughs> oh, locations. Life. But when I was doing those little pamphlets, and at university I was doing slightly better little homemade pamphlets, I would send them out to people. And you'd occasionally get a nice a, a note or a postcard back from someone saying, thank you for the book. Um, but Brian was one of the few who actually took time and wrote a really nice uh, note to me, uh, encouraging and supporting. And over the years, we've become friends. Uh, and he's been a... a a sort of uh, a, a guy, a kind spirit, a guiding presence there, and I feel really honoured and privileged that a man who, to me, was you know, was in books when mm. I was young. You don't meet people in books, people whose names are in books. I I don't remember having any authors come to my school. I mean, I go and visit a lot of schools now, and I know a lot of authors who do, but I don't remember anyone other than you know, dreadful theatre groups coming and doing you know, a one-act version of Midsummer Night's Dream or a you know, health and safety thing about not getting run over by trains. Uh, but I don't remember any authors coming and visiting. And so they were mysterious names on books that you never expected to really exist there. And the fact that uh, Brian's been so kind uh, over the years, I, I feel honoured and privileged. No, and Roger's a friend as well, and uh, obviously Adrian Henry's dead, so that's... Um... It's put to dump Can't but, get the whole set. But, that annoying? But Adrian, you know Nathan Pennington, don't you? Mm. Yeah. And Adrian Henry is his uncle. No way! You never knew that! That's interesting. And so we practically, we practically are best friends with Adrian Henry. So that's yeah. why Nathan Pennington did a thing about Yuri Geller, because of his involvement with the Reading football team. Is that how it all links up? Probably, probably. With Nathan, Nathan webs within webs, within mind games, within word games, within spatial anomalies, anemones, spatial anemones, anemones that actually take up space rather than immaterial anemones. The worst kinds. Yeah, no, absolutely. You look at them, oh, where are you? We're this not here. Isn't that necessarily relevant, but last night I dreamt <laughs> about Reading Football Team. That's relevant. It was an that's... intricate and involved dream where I was talking about their tactics oh. for ages in oh. the dream. I have no interest in football at no. the moment. Anyway, apart you... from World Cups and American Samoa. Well, my dream was, Brian Cox and me, right? We were going to be, we were playing Manchester, <laughs> and then Peter Kay turned up, and I said, don't let Peter Kay on, he'll make it he'll into his show, it. right? He and will. he made us all start by singing We Are The World. No. Then I woke up. And what was your dream? <laughs> I, We've never done our dreams I, before. Yeah, no, I, had I known, I would have made a note um, and, and written it down, but I didn't, so I'm letting the side down without having a dream. I'm sorry. I'm interested um, if you, that thing but about... But Su- Susan would have rummaged in my beard at some point, and that would have probably... <laughs> is her thing in the night. Is that what she um, does? Yes, yeah, she sort of nests um, and purrs, and it makes her happy and safe in the dark. 
That's nice. How many people listen to this podcast? Because I'm not sure that bit should go out because that's a bit weird. No, 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 um, I wouldn't worry. The nasty. people who listen to it find that quite normal. Okay, fine, yeah, fine. It's really, really not an issue. Yeah, the, um... that's, that's better. I mean, <laughs> what's that lucid dreaming? I was thinking about that oh, the other yeah, day. Controlling that... your own dreams. I've, there is an intro When you read things like William Burroughs' Dream Diary, or uh, there's a few people who uh, are, you know, really. To fascinate, have you ever had lucid dreaming? Yeah. No. I can do. I do that quite often. Partly because I used to have very vivid nightmares. And so I used to, and I do still have night terrors and stuff like that. So it became a way of handling it where I'd have to be like, come on, this is a dream. We've worked it out. Well done us. We've sussed out that there's no way this could have flooded. So this is a dream. And because we know this is a dream, what else do we know? We're not in any present danger. And it sort of changes it around. And I've had dreams where kind of I'm flying in the dream. Then suddenly I'm like, this is a dream. Well, if this is a dream, let's fly higher, you know, and that kind of thing. Yeah. I'm going to pray because it's got a writer called Alistair Fruish. I don't know if you know Alistair. No. And yeah, uh, yeah you, you know, and, and he wrote Kiss My Asbo, which had a bit of a spike of sales when apparently it was put on some list by Russell Brand, I think. <laughs> and, I, and I did a, it's, it's almost the like that. the guy who runs the prison. Yeah, yeah, he he works a uh, um, uh, a prison and and does various kind of yeah. literary things and and he uh, but he did a book, a book called The Sentence, which is one sentence. Mm. I don't know if you've seen it. It's just there's no punctuation. It's just one sentence. It's the uh, inner monologue of uh, a prisoner. It's a science fiction book as well. So it's got. Oh. And I did a thing the other day. I meant to tell you about this. Where um, it was uh, ten readers and we were all in a theatre uh, near Marylebone and. Uh, like one of us had to start, and there was Daisy. Daisy Eris was queuing us at different times, and you just read and read and read while an audience watched. Just a bunch of readers, many of whom, or at least I'd never read the book before, apart from the first couple. Of, and then, and then you have to while you're reading because you have to follow as well. Obviously, everyone sitting there has to yeah. read along, and then you suddenly get pointed at. You think, oh, now it's me. Oh no, I've looked up, and now I don't know where it is. But it was. I would love to. And then every time someone went out because I had to go to the toilet because it was like four hours with no interval, one of us would have to go and follow them and go. And then I thought of this, and at that time I was then terrified, terrified, terrified as I thought of the man, that stupid man there. And then I'd keep walking with them till I nearly walked into the toilet cubicle with one. <laughs> of the women because I wasn't looking up obviously but I then stayed by the sink so it was okay and then other people are weaving it then suddenly mm. you walk out following the woman they go uh, and as, as, as he held me the machine and I pulled the machine then someone else walks past doing almost That's, exactly yeah, the same bit but, because you're all roughly in tandem but there's a and, doppler and then standing by the bar while people are ordering drinks and you're still reading and, and then someone the effect? else I don't know because I was I yeah, wasn't you weren't watching. I wish I was watching Wow. But it was a really weird and interesting thing. It's called The Sentence by Alistair Fruish. Oh, so that was what you were reading? Yeah, so if you look at Alistair Fruish's website, you'll find out more about it. But it was a really... I was Sorry, I was just thinking because of poetry, these interesting experiments mm. of... And when you remove punctuation, you think, how much is this... So every reader, that there was a different... would pick up different styles. Mm. Very rarely did someone follow on with the same style, the same voice... As and sometimes you would find jokes, you would get laughs out of the audience because, but it's harder to find the joke because the timing of the because language you're is approaching it at really. The, yeah. in, in, sorry, that was a different, but, but I wanted to mention it because I just think that what Alistair you, and, and Daisy Harris did was uh, just a, one of those grand experiments where you go, This is a good, good experiment, isn't it? We need ne- more next time, Clive Anderson at the side saying, now country and westerns. Yeah. <laughs> now, like Alistair McLean. Well, that's um, what I wondered as well, that if you added a, like, a free jazz band as well, yeah. then what would come out of that? 
Because then you're also reacting to the music, not merely the words. So just that. There's uh, one of Adrian Henry's books that I've not brought. I forget which one it is. It might be uh, tonight at noon, possibly. Um, But in the back, there was there was a footnote or there's a little essay at the back which mentioned in passing an a happening that they'd done called Night or something like that in the 60s in Liverpool. I emailed Brian Patton and asked him uh, about this event because there was just a mention of it. And he was telling me about uh, the... It was, it was a proper happening with random stuff and unicyclists and fire and things. And... And all the only evidence I have is one email and one footnote in a Adrian Henry book. And had I known I was going to begin this anecdote, I would have done more research <laughs> uh, beforehand. Um, but the let me, happening let me... thing is like that's a real. I was watching the, a, a documentary about well, well, Neil Innes was showing oh, clips yes. of the Bonza Dog Doodah band that hadn't been wow. seen before, and you really go. There were just lots of you know. Let, let's but, make mm, this. Yeah. But it's a rose by any other name because the the amount of things that I go to that you know build themselves as gigs, but are not, but, um, but are much more adventurous, much more exciting mm. than that. It's just no one would call them a happening. You know. I don't know. I, I think that there, there are things going on, and I'm not in any way saying I hate that idea of oh, it's like my son goes, where are the Lenny Bruce's now? And you just go, you're not Everyone. looking. <laughs> There's not a Lenny Bruce now because Lenny Bruce was in the '60s and he's dead. What you mean is, where's the dead comedians from the 1960s? In the <laughs> 1960s and they're dead. Look, fucking look now. What are the singers? But I do think that, to ha- and I think you do it. You know, just to create events, because mm-hmm. that one. What was the one at Albert Hall that was filmed, and is a very pissed Allen Ginsberg. Uh, and it would a, have been one of um, Michael Horowitz's poetry Olympiads or something like that. But it's a really a, there's P-O-P. a young Scottish mm. poet who they're trying to get off, and he goes, "No, I'm gonna." And it's very uh, he wow. he killed himself eventually, Whoa, and he it? was. Um, I, I wish I could remember, but it's, there's a short film. Of it, and there's just, and it's a lot of R.D. Lang. Some of the people who were living in R.D. Lang, mm. one of the, the communes, are kind of just there, and I think probably on quite a lot of blotter acid or something as well. And it's just you look and you go, "Wow, this is." I'm not sure whether because you know, some happenings you go, "I think that did more good," and some you go, "I'm not sure if there might have been more damage here." Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I feel that way about some comedy games. Yeah. No. no <laughs> Anyway, we are uh, talking taking, musicals. Taking a quick break from <laughs> AF Herald, we are now got. Uh, we're, we're just down the road from Gosh Comics, which is my comic shop of choice. And uh, Nathaniel Metcalf, who is also uh, one of the, he almost runs your gig now, doesn't he? Black <laughs> I think James does a lot of the admin stuff. James Hingley, a uh, uh, dear admin friend. <laughs> Right. Anyway, so so now also amongst uh, working as uh, an Anthony Newley historian uh, is uh, works at Gosh, and uh, in fact I walked in there the other day. Do you know what I overheard him talking about? Star Wars, just like in one of those Kevin Smith films and, uh, set in a comic shop. And uh, how how embarrassing! How embarrassing! <laughs> and we having a heated argument. Well, with we're someone. also we're also the other day uh, we're playing sort of sound effects from. Um, Thunderbirds and things, which are quite nice. Mm. 
And you think, but there's something that's quite acceptable about that. But then it went from that on Spotify, it automatically started playing the Doctor Who theme, and we've got we've got to take this off. It's, <laughs> yeah, too, it's too. We've crossed a line. It's on the nose. <laughs> Trunk records you can get it used to be a 50p download. Might be more now. I don't know if you've got the Godzilla sound effects. No, I haven't. Yeah, Michael Legg said to me, "And why have you got those?" I went, "I don't understand what you're not getting for the title, Godzilla sound effects." The original Toho ones. I had uh, a CD, which is all the sort of incidental music of uh, Hanna Barbera cartoons. So. It's just sort of singing. You know it all, so it's always kind of ba 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 da ba da ba. You just get as like in the background as the character walking. Go, of course, yeah, I like this bit. Very nice. That's so mainstream. I've only got the incidental music from the ITC um, detective thriller series. <laughs> oh man, he always trumps me. Um, so we're just going to go through uh, overview of the best new things. Uh, in yeah, comic yeah. Shops I just did a brief. Well, I don't even know if it's in all comic shops, but I was trying to think... Well, it won't be in all comic shops, because some of them are rubbish and just have superhero tat and a load of dolls. I know. I mean, proper ones. I know. Well, we've got specifically this, which I don't know even... It's difficult to recommend, because apparently it's an edition of 20 (laughs) that someone brought in. Wow. And it's called The Times I Knew I Was Gay by... Is it Eleanor Cruz? Uh, Hang on. It's by Eleanor Cruz... Uh, Cruise spelt like crew the place with an S. Yes, <clears throat> and she's got a she's got a website, ElenorCruiseIllustration.co.uk, and that's probably what I'd point people towards because I don't know how easy this will be to get hold of. Oh, she's got an Instagram though, which I think is I love to follow an illustrator on Instagram. It is so great and so interesting. You get free updates of their work, and her Instagram is Illustrate, which is E L L I S T R A T E. Well, one of the things they do a lot in Gosh, we have a lot of uh, self-published stuff. And there's something that came in the other day, and she's the daughter of someone who's like a, a regular customer. And I think it came in in that kind of way that, and I think assumed we were taking it because out of some loyalty to, <laughs> to her dad. or. But um, it's one of those things where her illustrations are just so pretty. And I think it says something about, this is just essentially like an A4 folded over zine thing, but... The illustrations are so pretty and she she just draws in pencil and there's something about the way you can reproduce pencil lines, I think, in sort of regular printing that doesn't look like, that looks like pencil. You uh, sure she hasn't just drawn this 20 times? Well, that's what I thought. Because <laughs> I'm looking at it. That's and what it looks I was brilliant. doing. I said this saying it's, it look, just looks like, but there's something about that, which is a nice thing to see when you just get really brand new people who you feel that, I mean, the fact that she's got an illustration blogspot type thing suggests that maybe she is earning money as an illustrator which i hope so but it is very nice when occasionally people turn up with their first thing and it looks like the finished article of someone who's been going for years and years i think it's oh, absolutely beautiful yeah really beautiful I I like one, say... one of the times she knew she was gay mum spraying my hair black yes just for a halloween party <laughs> what's the next one we've got mm-hmm. again another sort of small press thing but a very different kettle of fish uh, this is Decadence 11, and Decadence are a sort of... Um, I think they probably like to refer to themselves as a cooperative of... Um, they're quite often quite avant-garde artists and illustrators who just choose to do science fiction stuff, and they tend to be very much of the... To say of the kind of sort of silent-running, kind of quiet science fiction, but it's almost everything they do. The artists often do quite sort of almost abstract science fiction often there's not even really a lot of them are just sort of geometric shapes and things but it's always really interesting and and it's so different from what other people do i think there's a 
Uh, one of the things about people that do often self-publish comics is they do often tend to be quite autobiographical or diary stuff, which is great. But it's nice as well when these people just go, I'm going to do some really way out science fiction because that's what I like. Or It's real. I like this. This is. And what's your next one? The next one is uh, Scarlet Traces, which is a book that came out probably about 10 or 15 years ago um, and is in similar vein to something like Alan Moore and Kevin O'Neill's League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. And it's War of the Worlds, but what would happen after War of the Worlds? And it's a nice... It's, it's essentially a sequel to War of the Worlds, but has all this stuff about empire. So if... if um, London actually had Martians land and were defeated, London would suddenly be... The whole of England would would just carry on being this empire. So there's stuff about empire and they have this kind of Martian technology. uh, It's written by Ian Edginton and he's one of those writers in comics that not a lot of people talk about, but he's... I always think his stuff's always of a very high standard and very thoughtful. But it also works like a sequel to... Dracula as well, so it sort of brings in other sort of literary things. And and but, this was in 2000 AD originally, Cyril? No, no, it wasn't. It, it, it is now. It was initially their own thing. Um, oh, right. And it starts off as an adaptation of War of the Worlds and then just kind of carries on. But what they do with it ends up sort of this sort of reimagining sort of alternative history of what would happen if Britain continued to be this superpower and is very kind of aware of what that means, there would be no fall of the British Empire. That kind of idea would just carry on and carry on. And the final one for this week? The final one is a thing we've just got in, but I read it last night, and it's by someone I'm not familiar with at all, called Najib, I think. It's N-E-J-I-B, and it's Haddon Hall, and it's based on David Bowie staying in Haddon Hall just at the time he's recording Hunky Dory. Um, and I read it last night, and it's it's got some really nice bits of... Um, essentially little bits of anecdote that you've probably heard or read in various books made into comics. But also, uh, it reminds me of... Uh, have you read Johan Svar? Have you ever read any of his no. books? He did, uh, he's a French cartoonist. He did The Rabbi's Cat, and I think it's quite influenced by his stuff. Um, and it's in a fair... I'm trying to think what it reminds me of. It's got almost... Johan Svar's won a lot of... Um, his kind of contemporaries, I think it's trying to do stuff like. So there's a lot of things, there's not many kind of page breaks. It's very kind of pretty looking. It does feel like a French style, like the way that the, um, even the font of the writing is yeah. like French. Uh, there's no box, comic. it's not like uh, boxes or anything. It's it's entirely, everything's just done on the page. It feels, uh, again, yeah, Yarn Svar feels like, when I saw it, I went, oh, it looks like Yarn Svar. <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> That, uh, what are you most looking forward to coming out? Is there anything that you've been looking at what's going to be, be released soon in comic books? Oh, that's a good question. Um, no, nothing. Great. <laughs> so that's good because it gives us all a chance to catch up. I like it when they don't bring out anything. Nothing. Nothing's out. I say give up reading them. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very well, much. When you, get, when you get older, when you get past about 12, you've got to stop reading comics, and you? Oh, <laughs> so yeah. kids, and they? What about you? Kids. Can I say I've read... Um, I read a great, uh, a great graphic novel about the Paris Commune. Bought my little brother a great graphic novel about Rosa Luxemburg, and bought him a great graphic novel about uh, called March about 
The senator, the amazing senator, who's a civil rights activist. John Lewis. 50. Yes. Sorry. Uh, no, thank grown you. Up she thinks she's calling them graphic novels. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, thank you very much, Thanny Makoff. Thanks for coming in your lunch break. As well. I know. I'm going to buy some of them, though, so it's actually worked as a sales pitch. So technically, you'll have 15 minutes more lunch break. Can I do? Yeah. yeah, yeah you're selling to me. I think that's right as well, because I, <laughs> I might suggest this. Cause I'll definitely have a word definitely with, mentioned yeah. Gosh several times. Yeah. I think this is like work. You can follow Gosh Comics on uh, Twitter as well, just at Gosh Comics. Or is, yeah, yeah. Another book I didn't bring with me is um, Garrison Keillor's Book of Guys, which is a short story or essay collection from the 80s about uh, masculinity and manliness. And Garrison Keillor is wonderful. I, I hope we can agree. Sure. Garrison Keillor is one of the finest and nicest and wisest and gentlest and kindest and interestingest writers around. And in the introduction to that, he describes going to a happening or an event uh, with naked people uh, walking through tyres, saying random numbers, waving flashlights, and how you go away sometimes afterwards and go, well, life is sometimes a bit like that, isn't it? (laughs) but sometimes it's not as well, and this is the, the key, isn't it? Sometimes life is... Oh, oh, the, uh, this book. This... Oh, sorry, I was probably a bit loud and excited. No, that's good. That's um, what we require. My... Uh, two favourite writers, Iris Murdoch, who I've not brought any books by uh, because she's brilliant, but what am I going to do? Wave them at you? One, Nuns is... and Soldiers. Right, because I'm trying the bell Although... at the moment. Have you read the, the bell? Yeah, yeah. I started to see yeah. the sea, yeah, but I never early... finished. One. The Sea the Sea is, is great. The Green Knight uh, is, is great as well. They're all great if you like that sort of thing. You know, this is the, the thing. She is a taste that may need to be acquired because it's quite a rich writing style and it's about intellectuals having affairs and worrying about the nature of the good right. uh, with a capital G um, which may not be everyone's cup of tea you know and there's no reason why it should be but I love her uh, but I've not brought her here other great writer Russell Hoban oh wow yeah who of course we know for books like Ridley Walker mm-hmm. and I particularly love the the late his his late novels were published by Bloomsbury which came out sort of one a year things like The Bat Tattoo Angelica's Grotto which are quieter, smaller, odder books and beautiful in their own way. But he wrote amazing children's books as well. The Mouse and His Boy is probably the most famous. But I recently discovered a couple of books from the early 80s that I never knew existed uh, that were illustrated by Quentin Blake. Um, There's one here called Monsters, which I'm holding up to the microphone here. Do you know this, Robin? Yes, I do remember that. I used to work in a children's bookshop. What is... What I love about this book is about a boy who loves drawing and he keeps drawing monsters and he starts drawing this really long monster on a roll of um, sort of uh, wallpaper. So it's an endless sort of roll. He starts drawing this and his parents are really upset and worried that all he draws are monsters. They send him to a child psychologist, as you do, and stuff happens. But what is so beautiful about the book is it has your Quentin Blake drawings that you know and you love there. But it has Quentin Blake's drawings of the boys' drawings, yeah. which are all in felt tip, all in child drawing on scraps of paper, on bits of they graph so paper, well. on lined paper. And they're, they're amazing. And you just, it just makes you want to say, Quentin, do more of this. 
Quentin, try a different style every now and then. Let's see what else you've got. It's interesting. And it's this sort of freedom, this unlocking freedom. I presume they were from children because it's a very hard thing to do that. I'm I'm simply assuming that they're Quentin Blake's. There's there's no acknowledgement anywhere to say they're not in, in the book that I that I ever noticed. So so I'm assuming, and yeah, it's so hard to get that childish line, but they are very good childish lines. Yeah, they're fantastic. Um, it so, and it and reminds me so much of I've got a little brother who's only only he's only twenty one. Yeah. Uh, it would be I perfect was, for him. Yeah, <laughs> no, but when, when he was seven or eight, we used to draw. We used yeah. to sit and draw monsters together, and it's exactly that style capture. But that's not the book I wanted to mention. Uh, I wanted to mention this book, which is also by Russell. I'm holding it for the moment, Josie. You can't touch it. Cool. Uh, Russell and Quentin called the Twenty Elephant Restaurant. I only discovered this a year or two ago, and it's one of those books that you read and you think, "Oh, why am I bothering?" I wish I would. I wish I could have written that. That's exactly what I've wanted to write. It's a short. It's a tiny story. It's a thousand, two thousand words long. Okay, I'm going to read the first page or two here. Uh, a man and a woman lived in a little house. They had a bed and a table and two chairs. The bed was good and the chairs were good, but the table wobbled. The man always had to put a book of matches under one leg, sometimes under two. After a while, the matchbooks would disappear and he would have to get new ones. When Christmas came, the man gave the woman a handkerchief and she gave him a tie. They sat down at the table and said, Merry Christmas. It doesn't feel like Christmas, said the woman. No wonder, said the man. What do you mean, said the woman. This table, said the man. What about the table, said the woman. It's wearing me out, said the man. The woman shook her head. All day she walked around shaking her head. That evening at supper, the man said to her, Why are you shaking your head? It isn't right, she said. It's wrong. What's wrong, he said. The way things are with you and that table, said the woman. It's all right for a man to wear out a table, but a table shouldn't wear out a man. It was just a manner of speaking, said the man. I didn't really mean that the table is wearing me out. I've been thinking about it all day, said the woman. Before we got that table, you were young and handsome. Now you're old and ugly. (laughs) What you said was true, that table is wearing you out. But we've had that table for 50 years, said the man. It stands to reason I'm not as young and handsome as I was 50 years ago. Whether it stands to reason, we don't know, said the woman. All we know is how it was before the table and how it is now. And so he goes off to the wood and cuts down a tablewood tree and planes the wood into planks and leaves it to season for a few years. And then he makes a new table. And it's a perfect table. And he said to the woman, this table is so good, elephants could dance on it. And she says, how many? (laughs) He says, well, only one, I would imagine. It's not that big a table. And she says, oh, you said elephants. I thought there'd be more than one. And so he makes more tables. And it makes 20 tables and and the chairs to go with them. And they decide to open a restaurant uh, with dancing elephants. Because we've been putting elephants on the table. And so they, they put an advert in the paper for elephants uh, with dancing experience and one phones up and they say, oh, do you have dancing? Oh, no, I can't dance, but I do have a truck. Well, that'd be useful for moving. Mm-hmm. You, you can come along. Mm-hmm. And he sets up this, this uh, gets all the elephants, gets the tables, and then he has to build the restaurant. So he chops down a restaurant wood tree and gets ready to build a restaurant. But people turn up before he's built the restaurant. And so they put the tables and they go, well, we can serve you burgers. That'll be fine. And the elephants will dance for you. And they say, oh, the elephants are in the way. We're watching this man build a restaurant. 
And so he builds a restaurant where people come and watch while the elephants serve them burgers. And then when their restaurant's built, they can go in and the elephants could do their proper dancing on the table. But eventually a customer goes, oh, my soup has just spilled. And he goes, oh, this table's wobbly. And, and the man goes and tests the table, but it's all firm. And it turns out the restaurant has wobbled. And so they take the restaurant apart and move it to another place and build it again. And the, the book ends... Oh, and sorry, <laughs> I just stole it from Robin there. Because uh, the book ends here. Uh, they went out and moved the road sign, so they told him how far it was to the new location. Then they put up the sign that said, Mr. Bildo, the one-man circus. See Mr. Bildo build a restaurant single-handed, a mission daily, 50p. Enjoy a hot dog cooked and served by dancing elephants. They collected admission money and they sold hot dogs and the man put the restaurant together again. Business was good and they stayed until the restaurant started to wobble. Then they moved on. Maybe there aren't any places that will stay flat, said the woman. Maybe that's just how it is. I think maybe you're right, said the man. Sometimes it's a one-man circus and sometimes it's a 20-elephant restaurant and that's life. Still, said the elephant, it's not a bad life. No, said the man, it isn't. And sometimes life is a one-man circus and sometimes it's a 20-elephant restaurant and sometimes life is stumbling around in the dark through a pile of tyres reciting random numbers and sometimes it isn't. And this is the world we live in. This is we look around us and this is, this is it. Sometimes it makes book. sense and it is beautiful. And I, these are some of my favourite Quentin Blake pictures because they're just in, in two-colour wash. So rather than the full colour or rather than just the line drawings, they're just in brown and grey. Watch for the listeners at home who can't see. I never uh, quite the book. understand what is it about Quentin Blake. I really love. I think I mentioned before the House of Illustration, which mm. just had an, the Edward Aldersonian exhibitions just ended. But oh, lovely! The, their Quentin Blake exhibition, I think, is still down at the museum in Cardiff, the big, like, kind of general mm. museum of Wales, and it's the same exhibition. It's a brilliant exhibition. I so. feel like I've seen that exhibition. Did it used to be at the comic book? Might have been there. It's got sad stories there, the Michael Rosen thing. Anyway, so I should mention, by the way, House of Illustration has a new uh, exhibition coming up as well. Always worth plugging House of Illustration because yeah. you have a lot of illustration here. God, and the I next one is I was talking about this the other day, in continuing our Jungian. Uh, this, this is uh, Raymond Briggs's Gentleman Jim, which was the Raymond Briggs book that. I owned when I grew up. It was well, the one. That, it was the one that was in the house. Other people had the snowman. Other people had when the wind blows, when the wind or blows, the fungus, the bogeyman, or the Father Christmas books. But this was the only one we had at my aunt's house. Was fungus, the bogeyman, and one of the Father Christmas books. And this book had such a huge influence, such a huge impact on me. Because if anyone doesn't know, it's the story of a man called Joe Bloggs, who's a public toilet assistant, uh, cleans a public toilet who goes to the library and borrows books every day. Uh, adventure books, thrilling, thrilling tales, um, you know, tales of the sea or war stories or um, cowboy and Indian stories uh, at the time. So and he longs to expand out of his life being a toilet assistant. And they look in the paper, him and his wife, and they see adverts for jobs and they all need um, levels O levels or A levels, and they say, "What are these things?" I think they give them you at school these days. All I got at school was a clip around the ear and a Bible, uh, says his wife. And he tries to break out and tries to do different things. He ends up becoming a highwayman. This is his thing, and and to do this, he go he finds a pair of waders in a 
in a shop. He tries to buy some cowboy boots first because he wants to be a cowboy. And he sees the boots in the shop window. There's a big sign saying, five pounds. And he goes into the shop and says, I'd like to buy the boots in the window. And, and the man says, what's this? And he says, a five pound note. He says, the sign says five pounds off. The boots are actually 95 pounds. And as this misunderstanding, this small man versus authority figures, these terrifying, faceless, the caricatures of the authority figures, the officials here. He gets a donkey to to try to be a highwayman. They get a donkey and they have to walk it through their terrace house out into the garden. And then the RSPCA man comes and says, oh, I can't keep an animal in the garden without some shelter. Uh, jolly, a jolly good chap, build a little donkey shelter. And he builds a shelter. And then the planning man comes round and says, oh, you measures it, you can't do that. And he's a horrible, faceless authority. Fi- and I'm still terrified of them. Do you think now, which Raymond Briggs book you first encounter becomes how you see the world and yeah, live your no, life? Absolutely, I think. Well, it's yours because, was when the wind yeah, blows. So. Yeah, well, that's no, what I'm thinking. So then absolutely. you have the fact that you write these, um, you know, adventurous, boundless things, and then I, I feel like, but with a sort of hopeless just, little man feeling. Could have been worse. In Could have been an unlucky Wally, wasn't it? Unlucky Wally, um, yeah, which yeah. Is, is one of his uh, sort of strangely grown up. Well, even Gentleman Jim, I mean, yeah. that's the thing. He's not really a no. children's no, and I think, author, is you know, he? After this comes um, you know, The Iron Lady and the Tin Pot Tyrant, mm. which is an astonishing... That turn, from the when you turn the page, from the caricature of these hideous Thatcher... Um, uh, who was the Argentinian bloke? Uh, Galtieri. Galtieri. Car- hideous caricatures. And you turn the page and you've got those black and white charcoal pictures of the dead soldiers, mm. of the submarine, of the that shock of i mean this is what illustrators and designers think about is that turning the page of where things are it's an astonishing astonishing book um and so so this the copy we've got here isn't my childhood one this Next. is drawn republished and by uh, drawn and drawn and quartered the canadian graphic novels and uh, raymond raymond briggs sent me this book after i sent him one of mine and it's a lovely note he, he wrote with it saying, uh, I'm sending you this, uh, republished by a Canadian publisher. They seem to think they've just discovered these graphic novels. Yeah. Uh, uh, and there was this sort of renaissance where they, they discovered that these things had been being done for years and Raymond Briggs was there uh, doing them. Are we, are we... We've got let's five see. minutes, okay. so let's let go. Me, let's go let through. me show you this. Oh. A tiny slipcase of Maurice Sendak. Oh books there's a little alphabet mm. book a little counting book mm-hmm. there's a really weird cautionary tale pierre about a boy who gets eaten by a lion because he oh. didn't care which is amazing no i know this uh and it's a beautiful little library of tiny starter books there um, he's wonderful to watch on uh the internet you find various interviews yeah. with him and he's no, always he a very beautiful thing to watch where mm. his ideas came from and the yeah. battle he had with in the night kitchen where because it's because there's naked a naked boy in it yeah and mm. it was like there were very there was a campaign to pretty much burn his books and ban yeah. them from oh. american and you'll libraries know, you'll know because you you visited reading i don't know if you've ever gone into the museum yes in reading where we've got the reproduction of the bayer tapestry mm. that was embroidered by victorian embroidery group and famously on reading's bayer tapestry 
the naked dead people have got little pants sewn on because it was Victorian times. I'm going to see if Morris Sendak wrote my favourite children's book. Oh, do, do. Uh, Alice Oswald, a fantastic contemporary poet. Uh, This book, Memorial, we're whizzing through these. This is another astonishing book. It's her translation of the Iliad, except the only bits that survive into hers are people's deaths and... uh, similes in between people's deaths so it's uh, it's called memorial it's a record of yeah but it's it's the most it's the most beautiful sorry uh, i'm I'm just yeah josie stop being funny um we're like talking serious poetry now Cool. Told you this was happening. We had a blinking poet on, didn't I? <laughs> Knew there'd be ramifications. But it's, it's it's a beautiful contemporary book that everyone ought to read if they like poetry things. Oh, it looks fantastic. Um, it is. It is. It is really nice. Borges, uh, this craft of verse, his collected uh, Charles Norton lectures at Harvard about about poetry. I'm going to read one tiny, one tiny thing from here. How do you pronounce him? I, I stick with Borges, but the beginning okay. would be Jorge Luis, or yeah. Luis, because you do the S's, don't you, in, in Spanish? What do you go with? Uh, depends who I'm talking to. Depends who I'm talking to. I always get worried. In, 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 authors I worry about the Borges says, oh, yeah. uh, in one of his many letters, Seneca wrote against large libraries, and long afterwards, Schopenhauer wrote that many people mistook the buying of a book for the buying of the contents of the book. Sometimes, looking at the many books I have at home, I feel I shall die before I come to the end of them. Yet I cannot resist the temptation of buying new books. Whenever I walk into a bookstore and find a book on one of my hobbies, for example, Old English or Old Norse poetry, I say to myself, what a pity I can't buy that book, for I already have a copy at home. Mm. So there's Mm. Borges. And the other bit I wanted to read from this book... Churchill's painting oh, as a pastime. You didn't buy that in Reading Oxfam recently, did you? Not recently, a long time ago. Oh, they had a copy, I and I was the, thinking about it. It's not this that. one. Ooh. It's a it's a fantastic little essay from 1932, so before he did the war stuff. And it's got his pic. It's got pictures, and he's a better painter than Hitler. I think we can all agree there. But in that, <laughs> you can. I'm going to just read uh, two paragraphs from the book that I, I made a note of. Uh, because we're here, because we love books, and these are irrelevant, and it's probably enough to finish us. Uh, the most common form of diversion is reading, Churchill says. In that vast, varied form, millions find their mental comfort. Nothing makes a man more reverent than a library. A few books, which was Lord Morley's definition of anything under 5,000, may give a sense of comfort and even of complacency. But a day in a library, even of modest dimensions, quickly dispels these illusory sensations. As you browse about, taking down book after book from the shelves and contemplating the vast, infinitely varied store of knowledge and wisdom which the human race has accumulated and preserved, pride, even in its most innocent forms, is chased from the heart by feelings of awe not untinged with sadness. As one surveys the mighty array of sages, saints, historians, scientists, poets and philosophers whose treasures one will never be able to admire, still less enjoy, the brief tenure of our existence here dominates mind and spirit. What shall I do with all my books, was the question, and the answer, read them, sobered the questioner. But if you cannot read them, at any rate handle them, and, as it were, fondle them. Peer into them. Let them fall open where they will. Read on from the first sentence that arrests the eye, then turn to another. 
make a voyage of discovery, taking soundings of uncharted seas. Set them back on their shelves with your own hands, arrange them on your own plan, so that if you do not know what is in them, you at least know where they are. If they cannot be your friends, let them at any rate be your acquaintances. If they cannot enter the circle of your life, do not deny them at least a nod of recognition. It's a Churchill-like books. I also like this, just this end of one sentence here. Audacity is the only ticket. Um, I'm going to give you this to put into one of your boxes. I'll take it. Do you know why? To uh, to put into one of your boxes for your listeners. No, because that's the book that my sister wants me to give to my niece for her birthday. Yeah, and you buy a copy of that, and we give that away because it's meant to be given away. This book book was published published last year. It's a children's picture book by Kate Pankhurst called Fantastically Great Women Who Changed the World. Uh, and it is a brilliant book if you want to know about fantastically great women who changed the world in a picture book format. My sister recommended it for her little daughter. So my sister is a really great, um, great feminist and knows her stuff. So I 100% mm. recommend it. It's also, brilliant. I just remembered oh, yes. the, uh, the book, the author by... Um, <laughs> the author, the author of, of the Small book. Pig, Arnold Lobel. There you go. Oh. That's all I have to say. Oh. Thank you so much for coming. Let's it's very read much out, my pleasure. Uh, and also, yeah, sorry, Energy of Slaves by Leonard uh, Cohen Leonard was down Cohen, there as well. Leonard Cohen, Come Hither, J.B. Priestley's Delight. Oh, I like the, those little collections, J.B. Yeah, Priestley. Yeah, they're so. lovely, aren't they? Um, so, thank you very much, Dave Harold, and thank you very much to uh, today's Patreon supporters are Francine Meek, Anna Boxpower, Alex Harris-McDuff, Connor Daly and... OK, I'm on it. Richard Ollie, Mark Cockshut, Steve Matthews, David Vaughan Birch. Do I get to do this bit? Yeah, you do. The Box of Books winners are Andrew MacDonald and Nick Learned. Thank you so much for listening. listening. I, hope that we've, I hope that we've put you off oh, if you're not I a I like the fan. fact that you sound like you were blushing at the end. <laughs> oh my goodness, they've been listening. Yeah, thanks um, for listening. And uh, so I think Nick Land is the PayPal winner and Andrew McDonald is the uh, patron winner. And as we said before, throughout the next month, probably the next two months, we'll be giving a box of books to a patron supporter and a box of books to someone who's donated via PayPal. And uh, I've never even asked you what you're reading, Josie. Well, never get we'll talk about it in the, in the later time. one because there's, um, I have some interesting things. Oh, no. Nothing that good. <laughs> no, that's Cliffhanger. Some... Yeah, yeah. Bom, bom, bom. Thank you. Uh, cool, thank so you. You don't need that. <laughs> I'm not if you'd like to know more about the podcasts that we've been doing which are in fact not merely book shambles podcast but we have many other podcasts including some science podcasts then go to in fact i say some science podcasts loads of science podcasts then go to cosmicshambles.com we'll be back with another new episode of book shambles next week but that will be the final episode of this series because we're going to be out in australia and new zealand on the cosmic shambles live tour So there'll be a short break of episodes while we're out there on tour. But if you do happen to be in Australia or New Zealand, specifically in Sydney, Melbourne, Perth, Auckland, Wellington or Christchurch, or you could travel to one of those cities, you should get tickets and come and see the show. They're going to be huge gala nights of comedy and music and science and all sorts of stuff with Robin and Josie and Matt Parker and Helen Chersky and Lucy Green and lots of local guests as well, like Dr. Carl and Katie Mack and Michelle Dickinson and Peter Berner and James Nokase and uh, Simone and Girl Funkel and lots of other people as well, heaps and heaps of guests. So go to cosmicshambleslive.com and you can get all the dates and tickets from there. 
And while we're out there as well, we're going to be recording the new season of Book Shambles, which will be out in late April, early May, with lots of Australian and New Zealand guests. So lots of great writers and comedians and performers and broadcasters who are all based in that part of the world. So thanks for listening, and of course, thanks again for all your support. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that at patreon.com slash bookshambles, or there's a PayPal link on the homepage of cosmicshambles.com as well. And we'll be back next week with the final episode of this series when our guest will be Philippa Perry. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.